Amen. Thank you very much for that. And uh, we've really been blessed with music, amen? Throughout this series, I've really enjoyed uh, each evening the special music. And uh, we've come to our last evening, and I must say that a series like this is certainly not a one-man show at all. Uh, We've enjoyed the music. We've enjoyed, of course, um, the fellowship together. And there's a lot of organization that goes behind putting on such a meeting series. And so I'm also very thankful to Pastor Samuel and John and others that have made this possible uh, and to um, the Montgomery First Seventh-day Adventist Church for uh, all that they've put into making this happen. Amen? So it's been a great blessing, a great blessing for my wife and I to be here. To, I've really enjoyed studying the Word of God together with you. And uh, I hope this will not be the end of your quest or journey in Scripture, but I hope that it will really only be the beginning and that you'll continue to dig deep into Scripture and let it transform uh, your life. Uh, Well, I'm happy to be here. It's our last evening. Um, What we're going to look at this evening, I think, is very appropriate as we come to the end of this uh, particular series, uh, Certainty in Uncertain Times. We are going to look at a prophecy found in Revelation chapter 20, uh, also many times referred to as the Millennium uh, Prophecy. And why I think it's very appropriate as um, a prophecy to deal with on our final evening is because it gives us really a glimpse into the future. Uh, You know, we are living in uncertain times, and challenges face us, and we need to have an encouragement, we need to be encouraged um, to press through uh, trying times. And you know what? When you know what is around the corner, when you know what is waiting for you, what God has in store for you, then that gives strength, that gives motivation to press on even in difficult times. So we're going to look at a glimpse into the future. We're going to allow the Bible prophecy, the Bible uh, pages of Scripture, to kind of peel back the curtains and to give us a picture of what is coming in the future um, and what is awaiting those that are faithful um, to Jesus and faithful to his gospel because there is a beautiful, beautiful future. And then in our second presentation, we're going to look at another chapter in the book of Revelation, which will be Revelation chapter 12, which deals with God's final movement in the end time. And so I look forward to both of these studies, uh, and we're going to begin this evening in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, But before we go any further, as we have done all the other evenings, we need to invite the real teacher to be amongst us, which is none other than the Holy Spirit himself. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word of God this evening. Father in heaven, I'm grateful to be here in Montgomery. Um, Lord, I never thought of ever uh, being here. Uh, Born in New Zealand, I lived in Europe, and here I am. Uh, But Lord, you knew knew from uh, even before I was born that I would be doing this. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you have brought me here. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word with the people here, uh, which are no longer just people, they are friends. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the time that we've been able to spend here. And I just do pray, Lord, that as we're all on this journey to know you more and to know you better, I just pray that you'll continue to strengthen us in our walk with you. Be with us this evening as we look at this amazing prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, the millennium prophecy, and also as we look at your last day movement in Revelation chapter 12. So we ask for your blessings upon your word and that the Holy Spirit may be our teacher. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so our attention goes to the book of Revelation. Um, As many of us know, and as I believe all of us are familiar with, uh, this is the last book in the Bible. We've uh, spent a considerable amount of our time during this series in the book of Revelation and various prophecies that are found there. Revelation was written by John, which was the disciple of Jesus, one of the younger disciples uh, when Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And uh, John um, was actually in many ways unique amongst the other disciples because as you look at the story of the rest of the disciples, they all died a martyr's death. They actually gave up their lives for the gospel. It was a very trying and difficult time in which they lived as they spread the gospel message. Uh, John, they tried to kill him, but it didn't really work, and so they banished, exiled him to the island of Patmos. And God had a very special work for him to do there because on the island of Patmos, he received visions and dreams Uh, which he recorded in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, And Revelation is really about Jesus Christ. Sometimes uh, we think of the book of Revelation as beasts and dragons and fire and hillstones and all that kind of stuff, and it's certainly in there. 
But uh, after all, when you take a clear look at the book of Revelation, it's really a revelation of Jesus Christ. But it also reveals powers that are opposed to Jesus. And so it unmasks deception and it upholds the light. That's really what the book of Revelation is all about, a revelation of Jesus Christ and a revelation of powers that are against Jesus. And so when you come towards the end of the book of Revelation, and we'll be particularly using our time this evening in chapter 20 in our first presentation, we find that uh, everything is coming uh, to a climax. And Revelation 20 deals with the millennium prophecy, even though the word millennium is not a word that you find in the Bible, um, it refers basically to the thousand-year prophecy that you do read about in chapter 20. Uh, the word millennium is a Latin uh, word which basically comes from mila, thousand, annium, years. So the thousand-year prophecy. What we're going to do this evening is we're going to first just read it through Revelation 20, the first uh, verses there, and uh, then we're going to go along and see if we can wrap our understanding around this chapter and what awaits um, us all as we look, uh, as we take a peek uh, into the future and see what God has in store, both for those that have decided for Christ, but also those that have rejected him. Um, the outcome, uh, the great outcome of, and the great um, analysis of the destiny of all human beings, including um, the devil, which is mentioned in this chapter, is all made known in this fascinating chapter of scripture, Revelation chapter 20. So let's get into verse one here. Uh, and the Bible says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? For a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, whatever, we, um, whatever conclusion we come to as to Revelation chapter 20 and exactly what this all means, because obviously there's some symbolic language involved here, one thing is for sure, this is good news. What do you say? I mean, this is good news because the devil, you know, has been out to deceive the nations and he has done this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You look at the story of scripture from the very beginning as he deceived Adam and Eve and then he continued to, to deceive and he continued to, to uh, work upon people's minds to revolt and rebel against their maker. And this is really the only thing that he's been doing for all these years, you know? His to-do list is to deceive, it is to misrepresent the very character of God. Revelation ends, as we come towards the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that this being, the dragon, the devil, Satan, will be bound, he will be chained. In other words, what he was doing, he can no longer do, okay? And he will be bound, according to scripture, for a thousand years. Now, this is going on during this millennium, the thousand years. Now, what else is going on during the millennium? Well, we continue uh, to read here. Uh, it says, till the thousand years were finished, but after these things, he must be released for a while. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But what else is going on during the thousand years? Take notice of verse four to six. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. We talked about the mark of the beast, and we talked about this grand deception of the beast that you read about in Revelation chapter 13. And so obviously a group of people is described here that have not worshipped this beast. They rather worshipped Christ. They worshipped God. They did not worship this false uh, power that set itself in the very place of God. And so they are with the Lord during these thousand years. And it goes on to say, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Years. So that's the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20. So we begin Revelation chapter 20, and first we are introduced to the dragon. And it's interesting because there are different players in this great controversy story. 
And so we're introduced to the dragon. The dragon is a great deceiver. It's Satan himself. But the Bible tells us that he is chained. He is bound. He can no longer deceive. And he's bound for a period of a thousand years. Then it goes on. The next couple of verses describe what is happening in heaven during those same thousand years. In heaven, there are people that are, uh, are reigning and judging with Christ himself. They are sitting on the thrones with Jesus, and they are with him. They behold him face to face. And these are those, the Bible describes, that have not bowed down to the beast, that have not bowed down to this false system of worship. They have been faithful till the very end. They have, they have not received the mark of the beast, and of course we know according to what we have studied in previous uh, nights, that they, these are the very ones that have the seal of God. They are sealed by God. They are faithful to God. They are his children, his followers. And they've not received the mark of the beast, and they're with Christ in heaven during these thousand years. Interesting. Now let's ask a couple of questions regarding this millennium prophecy to see if we can wrap our, wrap our minds around exactly what is taking place here. And the first question that we want to ask this evening is, which events mark the beginning of the thousand years? Because Revelation chapter 20, if we just took only that chapter and started reading it, it doesn't tell us when it exactly began, or it does indicate it, but we need to compare it with some other scriptures in order to, to really nail it down as to when this period begins. So that's our first question. Which events mark the beginning of the thousand years? Now, uh, if you look at the chronology of uh, Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 19 actually pictures the second coming of Jesus, and then Revelation 20 talks about the thousand-year prophecy. And what we're going to find out as we also compare with some other Bible texts here, that the beginning of the thousand years is when Jesus comes back the second time, when he returns in the clouds of glory. Now, take notice of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, and we've read this passage before but we're going to revisit it because it has also some truth here as we connect it with the millennium prophecy. Uh, and before I read this, let me just mention something else. As we read, and let me back up a couple of slides here because this is quite important. In this passage here, we read that those that are reigning with Christ are part of the first resurrection. Okay, they're part of the first resurrection. And so what we should be looking at is when does the resurrection take place? The first resurrection. Okay, well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you might remember this verse, we've looked at it before, it says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Again, Paul here is not talking about the sleep of taking a nap, but he's talking about the sleep of death. Okay, it says, don't, don't, don't be afraid or don't, don't be sorrowful for those that have died because there's a hope, and then he talks about this hope. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's a resurrection that takes place when Jesus Christ comes again. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul gives us the assurance here that when Jesus comes again, there's going to be a mighty resurrection called in Scripture the first resurrection. And these are the resurrection of the faithful, of those that have put their faith in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, that have believed in the promise of eternal life, and they will be raised to life. And maybe you will be in that resurrection. Maybe you will still be alive when Jesus comes. Let's hope for that. Then we will never taste that. But whether we are alive or whether we have died, when Jesus comes, we can all be there because first those that have put their faith in Christ are raised to life, and then together with those that are alive at that time, they meet the Lord where? In the air. Remember, the great deception in the last days will be Satan impersonating Christ himself. But we know, we know that it's false if he's standing on this earth because the Bible tells us we will meet him in the air, right? So we meet him in the air, and this really marks the beginning of the thousand-year prophecy. You see, we meet him in the air not to come back to this earth, my friends. We meet him in the air to go to a place that he has prepared for us. 
Amen? It wouldn't make sense to meet him in the air and then come back to this earth. This earth, by the way, is not really a nice place to be. If you read in the book of Revelation, the last seven plagues, remember the ten plagues in Egypt before they came out of Egypt? The Bible tells us that there will be seven last plagues before Christ comes again. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Well, if you look at those plagues and read it carefully, you will know that this earth will be a desolated place after those plagues have been poured out. Not a very nice place to be. And so the Lord takes us up into heaven, a place, where he has, a place that he has prepared for us. Now, what happens to those that are living when Christ returns and that have not accepted his invitation of mercy, that have rejected the gospel message? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so look at this. The millennium is ushered in by several events here. The second coming of Christ, the dead in Christ rise, those who are living and will be saved will be translated, and those who are living and have rejected salvation will perish. So very simple. These are the events taking place. Christ comes back. Those that have put their faith in him, both living and those that have been resurrected, meet him in the air, and then the Lord um, destroys those that have rejected him. And this is all taking place here at this beginning of the millennium prophecy. Now, where will the saved be during the thousand years? Also a very important question to ask. Uh, as we said already, it wouldn't make sense for them to come back to this earth. This is a very uh, common uh, passage, a very well-known uh, passage. It gives us a lot of hope, by the way. It, it's beautifully described here. Uh, the, how Jesus himself gives us confidence that we are going to spend eternity with him. And he says the following in John chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus spoke these words when he was on this earth 2,000 years ago. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. You know, I'm leaving, and when I leave, I'm going to prepare a place in heaven, and then I'm coming back to receive you to myself, that you may be where I am. Makes sense, right? Jesus has gone to heaven, is preparing a place for us, will come again, receive us unto himself, and taking us to that place that he has prepared. So according to scripture, that thousand years are spent in heaven with Jesus in the place that he has prepared for us. And this earth will be a desolated place at that time. This earth will be a place where the devil himself will be bound for a thousand years. The next question, where will the devil be during the thousand years? My friends, he will be bound to this earth, but it won't be a very beautiful place. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 20, we've already looked at these verses. Let's read them again. It says in verse 1 and 2, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And just remember that word for a moment, because we're going to find out what exactly that refers to. And a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He was bound to the bottomless pit. Now, what does it mean, the bottomless pit? Well, it's interesting. What is the bottomless pit where the devil is bound? The word bottomless pit is actually the word abyssos or abyss, which is the expression that is used. Listen carefully. This is fascinating. The same expression is used in Genesis when it talks about this earth being without form and void. So in other words, when you open up your Bible and you're going to read it for the first time and you turn through the index and you go to the book of Genesis and you start reading in chapter 1, you read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the second verse says, the earth was without form and void, right? Darkness was upon it, the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then, verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? So when we, when we read there in the introduction of Scripture, it says that this earth was without form and void until, until God spoke light into existence. Isn't it fascinating when we come to the end of Scripture that God basically brings this earth back to its form before creation? 
He brings it back to what it was before the Lord spoke. Let there be light. He brings it back to a bottomless pit, a place that was void without form and void. And the devil is bound on this earth that is without form and void for how long? For a thousand years. Now, I don't know if those are literal chains or symbolic chains. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that he can't go anywhere. He's bound to this earth, right? It could well be a chain of circumstances, but he can't leave this earth. He's here. And there's no place for him to go, and there's no work for him to do, because what has his job been for the last thousands, thousands of years? Deceiving people. But old people are gone. So, because either they are in heaven during the millennium, or they have been destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. And so here he is bound upon this earth with no people to deceive, and he's upon an earth that is without form and void. In other words, this world is like the beginning before anything was created. Now, there's a fascinating um, thought when you think about that because what, 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 was the great, um, what was the great rebellion uh, in the beginning? How did it all start? Lucifer, the devil, Satan, was, was rebelling against his maker, the creator, because he said, I want to be like the most high. He was jealous with the position that God had, because he no longer wanted to be the created one, he wanted to be the creator. And so what God does, very, very interesting, in the end of time, he says, okay, we'll bring the earth back to what it was in the beginning, the abyssos, without form and void, we'll bound you to this earth for a thousand years, create something. Right? Create something. Let's see if you can create something in a thousand years. Well, the interesting thing is, after those thousand years, nothing has changed. In other words, it's, it's a testimony that God is the only one that can create. Amen? Now take notice of this description that Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament gives us of this earth in its form, um, basically in this bottomless pit state or this without form and void. Uh, he describes it this way, a prophetic insight that Jeremiah has at this time. Verse 23 to 26, I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So uh, Jeremiah has this insight into the Lord's coming, the presence of the Lord, and then what the world is like after that. And he says it was without form and void. He uses that same language. He says of all things that had, had been destroyed and, 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 and all things were gone. People were no longer there. Cities were laid waste. Very interesting description as this prophet receives an insight into what the world is going to be like during the thousand years. And, of course, the great controversy really has been playing out during uh, many, many, many years. And here it really comes to its end um, during this period and shortly after this period. Next question. What will the saved and the redeemed be doing during the thousand years? And we're really going through these questions in order to wrap our understanding around the millennium prophecy. So what have we found out so far? The devil is chained to this earth during the thousand years. This earth is without form and void. And during this time, the redeemed are in heaven reigning with Christ. But we want to look a little bit closer at exactly what they are doing. What will they be doing during these thousand years? Verse 4, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. So judgment was committed to them. What does that exactly mean? Uh, it goes on to say, and, um, and for the word of God, who, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And then it says again, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So judgment was committed to them, and they live and reign with Christ during this thousand-year period. Now, when you think about judgment being committed unto them, uh, does this mean the judgment of who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost? Obviously, it can't be talking about that judgment because that has already taken place. Remember, when Jesus Christ came back, those that were resurrected and those that were translated, they were obviously the saved ones, right? 
the others were destroyed or they did not, they weren't part of the first resurrection. So, so this cannot be talking about the judgment of who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. This must be another kind of judgment. Well, the scripture gives us an insight into what kind of judgment the redeemed are involved in during the thousand-year prophecy. And we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 and 3, and the Bible says the following. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge what? Angels. Now, that's interesting. Judge angels. Now, now, my friends, uh, in the beginning, when the great controversy broke out, it didn't just break out between Satan and Christ. There were also a lot of angels involved in this great controversy. Uh, Revelation reveals that, that even a third part of the angels, and we'll get more into that when we go into our second study tonight of on Revelation 12, it mentions that a third part of the angels, they sided with Lucifer. They sided with the enemy a third part of all the angels. And so there are angels involved in this great battle, this great controversy, angels that have chosen for Christ, angels that have chosen for the devil and Satan. And so according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there will come a time that the redeemed that are part of this millennium, that are part of this thousand-year prophecy in heaven with Christ, reigning with him, judging with him, they will actually have an insight into the judgment that's going to fall upon the angels that have sided with the enemy in this great controversy. We will also be able to, and, and I'm speaking here in faith that we'll all be part of that great millennium prophecy up in heaven, we will also be able to look into the very works of God. You know, God is so good because God is not an arbitrary heavenly father. Uh, you know, sometimes... Um, we think about, you know, growing up and we think about our earthly parents and sometimes they would say to us things like, you can't do that. And then, of course, the child will always ask, why can't I do that? And then our parents, at least my parents, and I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this, at times they would say, because I said so. And maybe you've done that yourself as a parent, right? Because I said so. And the, and the child is like, well, you know, what does that mean? Like, because I said so. Do you know that God never, never answers that way? When we ask God, why, God? Because I said so. It's not an answer that he gives us. What the answer that he does give us is, well, have a look. Why? Now, we might not get all the answers that we want right now, but I can assure you, my friend, that there will come a time during the millennium prophecy that God is going to say, okay, you know why I did that during your life, why that happened and why that person uh, you know, uh, got that sickness or why you thought that I left you at that point or, or why you know, that happened or that happened? Here, this is why. It will be fascinating, my friends. It's fascinating to think about that that is the kind of God that we serve. Psalms 145 and verse 17 says, the Lord is righteous in how many of his ways? In all his ways and gracious in how many of his works? in all his works. And so during the millennium, uh, we will have be able to look into the very books of heaven. We'll be able to look into the very works of God himself. He will put himself on display. And he has nothing to hide. Because there will be a lot of questions that we will have during the millennium. I heard someone say this, you know, there are going to be three surprises when you get to heaven. Surprise number one, that you are there. Surprise number two, that there is someone there that you thought would not be there, right? And surprise number three, that there was someone not there that you thought would be there, right? So the three surprises of heaven. Now think about, we, we talked to think about this yesterday. Think about, you know, uh, uh, Saul that became Paul, you know, Saul the persecutor that became Paul the apostle. And Saul was standing there when Stephen was being stoned, and he consented to his death. And both Stephen and Paul are going to be in heaven. And so for Stephen, it's going to be like, what's he doing here? Some expl explanation has to happen. Okay? So during the millennium, this is a time where God is able to reveal his works so that every question will be answered and every doubt will be removed. Right? During, for a thousand years... We'll have the time to, to learn about the great controversy that we're all involved in right now. 
We're going to learn how it started. We're going to learn about the angels and why they chose for Satan or why they chose for Christ. We're going to learn about all the insights throughout history, about all the things that have happened in our own lives, the questions that we have ourselves about why certain things happened. And we will have an answer to all of that because these thousand years is a time in which we will be able to judge together with God. You know, there's, there's an expression in English, to have good judgment, which also means to have good insight. And that's exactly what God is doing. He's saying, I want to give you insight into the way I work. I want to give you insight into the way that I do things. And what a, what a wonderful thing to be invited into that. God is not a God that says, because I said so, but he says, this is why I did so. Amen? Beautiful. And that's during the thousand, thousand years. Now, what will happen at the close of the thousand years? So we found out thousand years starts at the second coming of Christ, resurrection of the righteous. They go to heaven. They spend a thousand years in heaven. And in heaven, their questions are answered and, and insight is given and angels are judged and all this is going on. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. At the same time, the devil is bound here on earth. The earth is without form and void. He can't do anything. He can't go anywhere. He can't deceive anyone. This is going on for a thousand years. Now, what happens at the close of these thousand years? Revelation chapter 21 ushers us into this beautiful picture. Take notice what it says. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the New Jerusalem is described as coming down out of heaven. Now, at this point, the New Jerusalem is in heaven. And when we go to heaven for a thousand years, we will be there in New Jerusalem. But then the New Jerusalem itself comes down and it comes to this earth after the thousand years. There's actually a prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah that talks about this. And it's interesting because um, this prophecy talks about how his feet, the feet of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives. And some people, by the way, use that verse and say, yes, when Jesus comes again, he'll stand on this earth. My friends, when he comes the second time, he won't. But when he comes the third time, after the millennium, he will. Right? So we need to get it right. We need to get it right. You know what the the great problem was when Jesus came the first time? They misapplied prophecy. And Jesus came as a servant, right? And they were expecting a king. And so they applied the prophecies in the Old Testament of the second coming. They applied to his first coming. And so they had different expectations. They said, hey, we're, we're waiting for a king. And they, they crucified him because they misapplied Bible prophecy. They applied the prophecies of his second coming to his first coming. My friends, let's not make the same mistake. We need to make sure that we have the right prophecies at the right event. So look at what it says here in Zechariah chapter 14. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Interesting, the saints will come with. We will be in heaven with him. After a thousand years, we'll come together with him, together with the new Jerusalem, to this earth. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Can you imagine what a scene that will be as the new Jerusalem? And we will be inside of that city, and it will come down, and it will settle on the Mount of Olives on this earth. This earth is desolated. It's without form and void, but we'll be in the city, and we'll be looking at this earth that God is about to recreate. I mean, what a scene that will be, better than anything that Hollywood can produce. Now, what will happen to the devil after the thousand years? Because here we are. We get the picture. We're coming down. We're settled on this earth. And you can just imagine standing on the walls of that city and looking out, and, and, and it's just without form and void. It's all without form and void. And just the city is there now on the Mount of Olives. What will happen to the devil? The devil is bound to this earth, remember, for a thousand years. Now it's after this thousand years. Look at what the Bible says will happen. Now, when the thousand years have expired, when they're finished, Satan will be what? Released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Okay, so one last time he's released. One more time. And, and, and he goes out to deceive. And, of course, the question is, who is he going to deceive? Because without form and void, there's nothing to deceive. Well, take notice what will happen as well at this time which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So, so he gathers people together to battle. Now, where does he gather them from? Listen to verse 5, Revelation 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were what? Finished. So, in other words, the Bible talks not about one resurrection, but it talks about two resurrections. There is a resurrection that is called the first resurrection, when Jesus Christ comes again the second time. 
but there is a second resurrection after the thousand years. First resurrection is at the second coming. The second resurrection is at the is at the third coming, we could say, or when the holy city descends on this earth after the millennium, after the thousand years. Now, uh, you might think, like, uh, where, where else do we find that in Scripture? Well, definitely there are other places that we find this in Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. Listen to what it says. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So there won't just be a resurrection of the just, but there will also be a resurrection of the unjust. But according to the book of Revelation, these resurrections will be divided by a thousand years. Okay? Now take notice of John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's the first resurrection at the second coming, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, that's the second resurrection, after the thousand years. Okay? Revelation chapter 20. Let's go back then. What happens? The city comes down, settles on this earth. The earth is without form and void. The devil that has been bound to this earth for a thousand years is released for a short while. A second resurrection takes place of all those that have rejected Christ, rejected God, those that have done wickedly, and they are now resurrected, and the devil goes forth to deceive them one more time. And they're ready to hear his voice. It is so interesting, my friends, that if you want to be part of the first resurrection, you simply have to listen to the voice of Christ. And if you want to be part of the second resurrection, well, that will happen naturally when you don't listen to the voice of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Because these, they hear the voice of their leader. They hear the voice of the one that they have followed. They hear the voice of the one that they have worshipped and believed and followed. And many, they will wake up and they'll think, oh, where am I? And then here he is to deceive once more. And so they go, for, listen to what it says. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. There will be many, many, the Bible says, that will be part of the second resurrection. As the sand of the sea, you can't even count them. But I pray that none of us will be in that number. It's interesting. It uses the word Gog and Magog, which is really a terminology from the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. Gog and Magog were nations that were enemies with Israel at that time. Gog means um, uh, to cover. Interesting to sometimes look at the meaning of words in Scripture. Gog means to cover, and Magog means multitudes of people. And so the multitudes that have been covered by the very lies of the enemy. And now he goes one more time to deceive them. And they listen to his voice as they have been accustomed to his voice, to listen to his voice throughout their lives. And so they follow him, and their number is as the sand of the sea. And do you know what? They actually surround the city of God, believing that they can conquer that city. Now, now you know, just think about that picture for a moment. Each one of them could have been in the city if they wanted each one of them, if they had only put their faith in Jesus, could have been inside of the city of Jerusalem. They rejected Christ. They are now outside of the city. They're part of the second resurrection. And now as they've gathered together, they believe that they can actually take the city by force, which I believe is kind of salvation by works to its extreme. Right? Salvation by works. We'll make our way into that city. But it's too late, my friends. They could have been there if they had only accepted their Savior. But now they surround the city, actually believing the lie of the devil that they can destroy the city and take it by force. But take notice what happens next. What will Satan and all the ungodly do at this time? Verse 9, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You can just imagine the scene. It must be just incredible. No art can really picture what that exactly will be like. What takes place while the ungodly surround the holy city? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and 12. This takes place. Just imagine here, every single person that has ever walked upon the face of this planet or ever lived will be represented right there, either inside the city or outside of the city, either on one side or the other side of those walls of the New Jerusalem. You can imagine the scene, millions and millions and millions of people. They've surrounded the city. They believe they can take it by force. And at that very moment, this 
this, this passage just comes alive. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. There's this final judgment scene that takes place there at this scene at the New Jerusalem. And you know what? Isn't it fascinating just to think about how, how even, even those that are part of the second resurrection, even those that have rejected God, will have, an, will have an opportunity to see the very works of God there. They will see for themselves that they've been wrong all along. And you can, just, you can just think for a moment how that must appear, this panoramic picture of the great controversy. You just think about Scripture, you know, from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they took of that forbidden fruit. But immediately after that, the promise was given that out of the woman would come a seed, and that seed would set them free. It was Jesus himself, and he would crush the head of the serpent, the symbolic language that the great controversy would be won by God and by Christ. And we see as we go throughout the thousands and thousands of years of human history, which Scripture pre uh, presents so beautifully that we come to the very point of the birth of this child. God in the flesh came to this earth, and he lived a life, a perfect life. He ministered to the downcast, the downtrodden, the marginalized, and here he is again now on the white throne, and all people see him for who he is. They see him, that his character has been righteous, that he has been, that he has been killed by unrighteous people. And you know what? It's so beautiful because, again, all people, even those that are part of the second resurrection, will see that he is indeed the one that he claimed to be. Oh, when he stood before Pilate, you might remember those words that he spoke. Pilate, he asked the question, what is truth? And he turned around and walked away. And Jesus himself was the embodiment of truth. And Pilate washed his hands and Jesus was crucified on a tree. And here, now, he's sitting on the white throne. High above the city, everyone can see him. Everyone can know him. Everyone could have been in that city, but they chose to reject that great gift. Christ himself took our sins upon himself for every single person right there at that scene. But only those that have claimed the blood of Jesus are inside of that city at this time. Jesus has been an, our high priest and, and again, when we think about that right now, Christ is right now in, in the sanctuary in heaven ministering for each one of us. He wants everyone to be saved. The book of Hebrews tells us that he will save even those to the uttermost. He will do his very best to save every single person. My friends, there is no doubt in my mind that everyone could have been in that city and that God wants everyone in that city. But sadly, there are those that have rejected him and he will not force us to be in a place with himself throughout eternity if that's not our wish. And so sadly, there are many that have rejected him as the Savior, that have rejected him as their high priest, they have rejected him as their coming king, and now they have rejected him even right now as they're standing around the city. They want to take it by force. But the Bible tells us they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of the heaven and devoured them. This is the final destruction of sin. The final destruction of sinners that have held on to sin in their lives. This is what hellfire is really is. And we have learned already that hellfire is not an internal burning, but it is an end. It is a destruction. It's over. It's done. And this takes place right here after the thousand years as all those that are part of the second resurrection, including the devil and his angels, have surrounded the city. The Bible tells that fire comes down from heaven and devours them. What happens then after Satan and the ungodly are destroyed? Take notice as we're launched into Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the final two chapters of the Bible. And the Bible describes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Wow, amazing. After the destruction of sin and sinners, what happens is that Christ himself makes all things new. 
Remember that this earth during the thousand years was a place that was without form and void, the bottomless pit, the abyssos. Now as the city has come down, the second resurrection has taken place, the final destruction has taken place of all the wicked, now Christ himself starts recreating this earth. Just like in the beginning, we read that God, that the Spirit was, was hovering across the face of the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he started creating from a world that was, that was without form and void. So now Jesus starts recreating this new earth. And my friends, it will be even better than when he created it the first time. I mean, when you look at the description, oh, it's going to be a beautiful thing. And you know what? We're going to be able to watch it. I mean, that's going to be the best, the best movie ever. Can you imagine just looking at Jesus create this world from nothing? And we'll be able to watch it to come. This, this planet that has been the center of sin for thousands and thousands and thousands of years is now going to be recreated. And we're going to, be watch, we're going to watch Christ do it. From, from moment to moment, he will recreate it in its beauty, in, in, its, in its splendor. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be beautiful. We'll be able to see it happen before our very eyes. No more death, no more suffering, no more pain. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. And you know the best thing about that creation? He's going to create it, and there's going to be no tree of knowledge of good and evil. Can you say amen? Oh, there's going to be a tree. There's going to be a tree of life. But there's no longer going to be the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hey, we're done with that. I mean, we're all going to say, no, 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 not that one, not that one. We've, we've seen that. We've done that. There's, and there's no, there's no longer going to be a need for it. That's the beautiful thing. You know, the, the reason why God gave that in the beginning is because he wanted to give them choice, right? Free will. But my friends, everyone that is there has already decided. I mean, they are determined to serve the Lord. There's no longer need of a tree of knowledge of good and evil. The only thing that has replaced the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the marks and scars in the hands of Jesus that we will always behold. That is what has replaced it. And that will be the reminder of what we have experienced on this earth. And that will be the reminder of what Christ has done to bring us from here to that new world. Amen? What a beautiful moment that will be. And, the, and all things. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, but as it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So start imagining what that must be like, okay? Just start imagining the best world that you can imagine, and then it's not good enough. It's going to be better. Amen? According to those words, it's going to be better than what you can imagine. So you do all your best, you do your very best to imagine, and it's going to be better. Isn't that good news? Amen. You know, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to close with these verses. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is a parable that Jesus spoke. A man finds a treasure and he deems that treasure more of more value than everything that he has. And so he goes and he sells everything to obtain that treasure. My friends, have you found that treasure? That treasure is Jesus, amen? And if you find Jesus, you've found everything. If you've found Jesus, you don't need to continue to search. A lot of people searching in our world today, searching for truth, searching for meaning, searching for purpose. But once you have found the treasure, don't search. Start enjoying it. I mean, tonight, from this day forward, you don't have to search. Yeah, you can search the scriptures. You can search for the deep meaning of the treasure you've found. But you've found it, amen? You've found it. This is it. I mean, this is it. Uh, you can continue to search, my friends, but you're not going to find anything that is more valuable than this. I can assure you of that. So rather spend your time in enjoying the treasure you've already found than looking for something else that you think is going to give you meaning, amen? Because this is it. I mean, this is it. You've arrived, but just now make sure that you, that you investigate it and embrace it and practice it and bring it into your life and make it everything for you. Then you will find true happiness and joy. The treasure is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has died for us. He has risen for us. He is now ministering for us, and he will soon come again for us. And we can be part of the kingdom that he has prepared for us in heaven as well as as we come to this earth after those thousand years, and he recreates this earth 
for us. What a beautiful moment that will be. Let's close with this text in Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into that city. My friends, if you want to be blessed, keep his commandments. Amen? Oh, keep his commandments. Follow his commandments. They are, they are beautiful. They are wonderful. Amazing promises to you and to me. Don't let anything keep you back from entering into that city. The Bible tells us that those who do his commandments have the right to the tree of life. This is the tree of life and the world made new. May nothing keep you from that place. And whatever sacrifice you have to bring on this earth, it's worth it. Amen? It is worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the amazing prophecy of the millennium. Thank you, Lord, that you have a place that you're preparing for us even right now. And I pray that we may be there, that none of us would be part of that second resurrection, but that all of us will be part of the first, or that we will be alive when you come, Lord. What a great joy that would be. And Lord, may we spend eternity with you in that city and in that world that you make new. And I pray that nothing, nothing may keep us from the tree of life. Lord, your word says that blessed are those that do the commandments. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us, give us the strength and power that we need to make any decision in life that we need to make in order to keep your commandments so that we can be part of your people. And Lord, your commandments are not burdensome. There's really a blessing in it, and help us to experience that blessing. Help us to make you the greatest treasure ever. And we thank you for your mercies and for your patience with us and for the faith that you not only, not only that we can put in you, but that you put in us. So thank you that we can be your children. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.